You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm talking to Chris Addison, who many of you in this country will know as a brilliant stand-up comedian and actor. He's uh, most known, I guess, before now this is, uh, for his work as Ollie in The Thick of It, uh, the political drama which was uh, created by Armando Iannucci and which went on to enormous success, representing as faithfully and accurately as it did the horrific state of uh, the the kind of uh, eternal middle-person of British politics. Um, he was in the thick of it, He was all, and he went on to direct an episode or two of it, as we shall discover, uh, and then he was in the movie In the Loop, and then he started directing Veep, which uh, many of you will be huge fans of. Chris has a movie coming out. He's now a proper Hollywood director. Uh, his movie The Hustle is released in the next few weeks, and it stars Rebel Wilson and Anne Hathaway. Uh, I caught up with him at the Avalon offices. Very, very exciting to be wandering around the Avalon offices. Um, and uh, we talked at some length so I think you've got about an hour and 20 here and there's a further half an hour available exclusively to members of the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders in which we find out the surprising secret of Veep's success uh, as per Chris and uh, also we learn something about a particular technical department and what they meant to the success of the thick of it. Loads more of that to come. Uh, That kind of chat we'll talk a little bit about his Edinburgh shows and his writing but uh, let's jump straight in with what it feels like to be a director of a Hollywood movie and how you cope with your very first day on set. This is Chris Addison. We share a mutual friend in Joe Joyner, who I have known since college... We went to Stratford College together and we've stayed in touch. This this little knot of mates of ours stayed in touch in a way, like, more than I stayed in touch with anyone from uni. Yeah. So, like, uh, I I, I rang her for some goss on you. I rang her for some Uh, intel. She, so, I just think she's incredible. Um, I've completely forgotten that because it is, I was, I remembered the other day, six years ago since we did our show together. So, but we'd spoken about the fact that she knew you at the time. Yes, yeah, we must have. Because it's six years ago, I completely forgot. Was it Bridport? I remember... Bridport, we did it. No, 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 I mean, no, we did Bridport, but no, it's the, the, the show that... Oh, so you're trying again, yeah. No, yeah. Bridport, um, I was trying to think about how long ago Bridport was. It's a long time. It's a long time. But yeah, we did the electric, didn't we? We did the electric in Bridport, and um, I wondered whether you would remember me when you walked yeah, in the yeah, room. Yeah, because totally, we, yeah. I don't think we gigged together a lot. No, but I think that might be the one and only time. Yeah, right. Because what... <laughs> it was a big old room, I can't remember. Oh, I it love that. It might room. have been... Sarah Pascoe on the bill as well? I don't know, but like a very... Or a I think it was... Was it... Because who was running it? It was Will, wasn't it? Will Briggs, yes. Will was running it, and... I don't know, it might have been. I remember... Yeah, it might well have been Sarah. But I thought... I mean, I was planning to... I was imagining greeting you with Hollywood director Chris Addison. <laughs> like, it's such a different thing. You yes. know what I mean? Like, is it... Is Come it on. <laughs> well, but like, anything's... 
Anything's normal once you do it, isn't it? You realize, you go, oh, okay, this is just that, isn't it? I imagine there are certain jobs where, like, if you, I don't imagine if you're sort of in the hills of Afghanistan uh, trying to pin down the Taliban that you uh, that, that you go, oh, do you know what? It's just a day at work. But I think I think most things are. You go, oh, that's just once you see behind the curtain of something, you go, oh, okay. it's just a bunch of people doing a job. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's start with hustle and then and sure. then go right back and kind of work up to it. So. Okay. Uh, you're, uh, you have a feature film which is being released in yes. any minute now, don't you? <laughs> yes. yes. And it's, so, a, and it's, it's like, it's a Hollywood film, it's a proper, there, yes. you know, Anne Hathaway, Rebel Wilson, proper yep. huge stars. Yeah, the first thing you see on the screen is the, is the MGM lion, which is, yeah, that's never sort of not been extraordinary whenever I've seen it. Yeah, so it is proper. How does it feel doing a proper thing? I mean, you are now, a, you've, di- you've directed 13 episodes of Veep, you've directed yeah. stuff, you're a proper director, you've yeah. won awards. Yeah. And so, I don't know, I've got so much to ask you about directing we'll and what it means. What? But tell us, tell us where you are in the film, in the life of the film. Are you doing like junkets uh, okay. and stuff at the moment or what? Um, <laughs> is, this, is this a junket? <laughs> this is the junkets, too. This is the whole, this is all, and they don't even know I'm doing it. I've had to arrange this myself. Um, I don't think I will be doing a lot of joking. Maybe I'll do a couple of things whilst I'm here, but it's funny, we had a... We had a everything about doing the film has been a total sort of... Oh, is that... Oh, right, that's, that's a thing that happens, is it? Um, and one of them was we had a marketing meeting the other day, but I was, I was sort of on the phone. I was on the phone in one of those, th- those things in the middle of the table. Oh, yeah. It was, it was in a meeting in Los Angeles somewhere... And there were all these people around the table from the distributor and the studio and all of this and the producers and <laughs> and I could catch every third word. Anyway, they sent this PDF through of all the marketing they're going to do for the for the film, which is kind of overwhelming when you look at it. I was looking through the whole marketing and I got increasingly giggly <laughs> as I realised, oh, I, my name isn't mentioned on this all for anyone pages not even directed by it's okay I have I am no part of the the marketing strategy for that your name must be on the poster what font are you on the poster I'm in that film font okay I don't know what somebody must know what that film font is called but you know you know what I mean so so it'll be on the I'm not sure if it is on the poster (laughs) it might be on a poster if there's one of those sort of blocks of text about you know but it's as ever it's like the last one on there and it's all I don't know. It'll be little at the bottom. It doesn't say director by or anything. So it'll just be Rebel and Anne. Because your directorship isn't an asset it's to the marketing. By no means an asset to, yeah. to, to marketing that. There's no... But, you know, you can't... <laughs> you'd have to be... Have a monumental ego to imagine that, well, we've got, we've got Rebel Wilson and Anne Hathaway doing this movie, so I guess it'll be the three of us out there on the chat show. Sure, sure, that's what's going to happen. Because you've got, you know, two legit Hollywood stars, so there's, mm. your, there's your marketing. Um, so, Junkets, I, I don't think so. But, um, yeah, so the, the film is, is it's, it's in, in the can, as they say. All of the stuff is done, all of the kind of, everything has been, has been done to it that uh, needs doing and we, we handed that homework in when did we hand that homework in actually most, it, it was quite it was quite it was longer after it sh- than it should have been it was okay. like the last thing we had to do which was put the final song on took months and months and months and months so it was never completely finished even okay. though it was fundamentally finished we weren't able to tick the box box is now ticked can is closed it's on a shelf somewhere They've put a trailer out, and now I just sort of sit around going, "I wonder what's going to happen next," because oh, I don't, okay. I don't really, I don't really know. 
uh, about any of that stuff. Do you so, mean what's going to happen next in terms of the process? Of yeah, in terms of the process. Because yeah. I just sort of one of the things is it was the first time that I'd done it, and and what I found a lot with directing from the very first TV that I did onwards is that you're just expected to know like it's a normal process for them okay. so they sort of understand all of this and several times in the process I found myself going oh oh that's a <laughs> that, that's a thing is it okay fine well I guess we do that then um, and so can, like, you know, like what can you give us an example well, I, yeah can I give you an example that won't get me in trouble that's the, <laughs> that, that, that's the key oh something will come to me as we, okay. as we, as we discuss speaking formless abstract yeah formless abstract <laughs> but that that kind of the, the sort of I mean I, the, I, I sort of I, I think that the people who make films people it, uh, producers who produce many many films and uh, studios who you know that's, that's what they do they just understand that the same as anybody making anything. You know, if you're making a sausage, you go, "Well, I mince the meat, mm-hmm. and then I put in the herbs, and then I put it, and then I have to, I have to sort of attach the skin to the machine, and then I put." So then you know all of the things that you're, you're doing, and they're they're the same. They're going, "Okay, well, we do this with the script, and then the next thing that's going to happen is you're going to have to go through this sort of compliance thing." What is expected of you as a director of a Hollywood movie? Because I think going yeah. into it, I, I think. I've, I've no idea really I've heard kind of both versions whereby the director is the kind of auteur who yeah, yeah, it's yeah, their baby yeah, yeah. and then in some cases the director seems to be forgive me directors <clears throat> no. kind of just a person who nods at the DOP yeah. and goes oh yeah do that great yeah. you know it's almost like the, the job as I've heard it described by some people who I'm unable to name but I've got this yeah. sense yeah. That, that it's really the job of the director is sort of to kind of stay out of the way of everyone doing their thing that they specialise in. That's a very good... Well, staying out of the way of really talented people is quite a skill, actually, and it's something that people should do more often, and that's a thing that we (laughs) discuss when we're talking about broadcasters and studios and all of that, aren't we? That, that, you know, really successful... um, Really successful... uh, For example, a really successful channel, the world's... Still the world's sort of highest thought-of channel is HBO. HBO's gift is that they pick talented people and they stay out of their way unless it becomes necessary to not stay out of their way so and that's the and knowing where where to just no, well, that must be the whole thing isn't it like yeah sometimes it might if you're an hbo exec sometimes yeah. it must feel like i can't tell if this is going off the rails yeah. or it's genius but you can't no one can actually tell that's the thing no one no one can actually really tell and, and not all hbo shows are successful Okay. You know, the, the, there are, there's, there's an inherent risk sure. in, in allowing people to, to, to do their thing. Um, the, the nobody knows thing, right? One of my very favourite stories is about Frank Muir. You know, remember Frank Muir? I was mm. in Dennis Norden, Frank Muir. Frank Muir uh, was for a time, I think, head of comedy at LWT in the 60s, London Weekend Television, um, for our younger listeners. <laughs> and... Uh, he was sent on a sort of fact-finding trip to the States and he ended up on set with Mel Brooks, who was making a sitcom. So it must have been Get Smart, I guess. Okay. Um, I, I assume that's what it was. <clears throat> anyway, he, he visits visit set, Brooks is on set, and Frank Muir, in between takes, Frank Muir is introduced to Mel Brooks. And uh, the guy introducing him says, Mel, this is uh, Frank Muir. He's head of comedy at London Weekend Television. And Brooke says to him, you mean you know? <laughs> I love that. Because the, no one knows. 
<laughs> no, Bryce doesn't know. Nobody knows. But you. But I suppose. Do you have to pretend to know? Oh, to, absolutely. To steal the shit. That's a huge part of it. Um, but that's a huge part of all comedy, right? A huge part of what we do as comedians is convince people you know what you're doing, right? It's all. It's all a confidence trick, not a con trick, but a confidence trick. A sense that to to make people feel in safe hands is the your first job as a comedian, and it's the same. It's the same with uh, with directing anything you know it might sort of feel like it's all falling apart beneath you falling away like wet cake as uh, <laughs> Dylan Moran says in Black Books but you might feel that everything is falling apart but your job is to make everyone else feel that it's fine because then they can do their jobs um, I think to go back to your, to your uh, initial initial question I think really I don't really subscribe to the auteur theory I mean I would never make that claim about myself anyway that would be insane um, but I also I also think and that the, the, the notion of auteurship in film is incredibly dangerous and also it's just wrong because I've, I've said this I've said this before I, you know I have this extraordinary team making that film brilliant DP in, um, in Mick Coulter who's done everything like he made he shot Gregory's Girl and he shot Four Weddings and Notting Hill and, and uh, he's done everything. Like, he's, he's phenomenal. And Alice Normington, the production designer, and Anne Dudley, the composer, all these people, so many creative people who are brilliant, right? So the idea of going, it's a Chris Anderson film, sure, is sure. shut up. Um, and I, I, I just think any film, whatever you're making, however brilliant you are, even if you're Quaron making Roma... Uh, and you've shot it yourself and, and, and you've written it and you've directed it. Yeah, but there's a production designer, there's a whole bunch of, of other extraordinary te- and, and very artistic technicians who have brought their skills to bear. It's not just you, mate. I think the key is, you're the, I, the way I always think about it is you're the keeper of the vision, right? That, so that to prevent there being too many cooks, there has to be a chef. And that's what you are. So, so a, a designer or a or, or a, a DP or an actor, director of photography, sorry, or an or an actor, anyway, is going to have a, a, a bunch of ideas about how you're going to make that thing, and you need to make sure that they all fit, that they're, that they're going in the direct in in the direction mm. that you need them to be. You need them to be to be going, and you've got the. So it's, you're the keeper of the voice. You're you're the one who who sets that um, and 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 gives an idea of what it's supposed to be, and then people will come back with their responses to your idea, and then you sort of pick and choose and and shape um, between you, uh, you know where you're going, and and hopefully, uh, if you've done your job properly and communicated that correctly to people, you you end up with the the thing that you need, and that's why things like storyboards exist because because on the day especially if I mean storyboards are generally used for sequences that are quite complex but you could storyboard everything if you wanted to you could sit down and 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 do every shot for every scene you do that because you want everybody to understand this is what we're here to achieve and it's your job to to be the sort of arbiter of that really okay 
a joy to be talking to Chris. It's so much fun uh, speaking to him and um, and just lovely to, you know how nervous I get before these things. And it's really fun to uh, to find yourself being able to reminisce about a gig in Bridport <laughs> with someone who has gone on to such phenomenal, uh, phenomenally accomplished work. So re- a real pleasure uh, speaking to Chris. And God, so fascinating hearing that kind of... Um, Almost the internal monologue of someone who is, uh, what must that be like, day one of directing your Hollywood movie? It's just astonishing. I'd go to pieces, I'm sure. Unless at some point I end up uh, being offered that position in the future, in which case I'm sure I'd be excellent. Uh, We're going to hear lots more from Chris in just a moment. A couple of things. You will be aware uh, of the sad death of Ian Cognito, I'm sure. Um, One of the circuit's most uh, sort of heroic, colourful kind of figures he was uh, i'll talk i'll talk about him at, at a bit more length in the post sample let's let's put that let's put a pin in that for now um but condolences to everyone that knew and loved cogs uh, we'll talk about that in the post sample in just a sec other bits and bobs before we crash on as i mentioned the insiders club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders is where you get the other half oh no it's not quite a half it's another sort of half an hour's worth of uh, of material from this interview with chris and very good stuff it is too um you can also see me on tour go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour for that stuff and thank you to the people of salisbury and leamington spa and where else reading south street oh my god i've had some really blinding shows recently and i'm trying to wedge in an interval wherever they'll let me uh, so that i can do a second hour of new stuff all uh, trimming stuff and making it all nice and shiny and then totally taking it to pieces and letting it fall apart for my work in progress show at Edinburgh this year basically anything that gets good enough it's out so uh, so the stuff on the work in progress show will still be very much progressy um, or very much yeah progressy not worky <laughs> the opposite um, so all of that you know uh, other things. There are two other things I'll quickly mention to you. There is um, a quick shout out for a comedy night, the first ever comedy night from womenandchildrenfirst.org.uk. Go to womenandchildrenfirst.org.uk slash comedy. It's on the 13th of May at the Leicester Square Theatre in London. Um, loads of comics are supporting this brilliant cause, including Josh Widdicombe, Kerry Godleyman, John Robbins and many more. And in, there's probably even one or two that haven't been on this podcast. But it's to help support women, children, mothers and babies in the world's poorest communities. So you can get tickets for that at the Leicester Square theatre website or there's a link in the show notes womenandchildrenfirst.org.uk slash comedy also if you yourself are a comedian this is a very insidery sort of a thing now this is just for comedy pros and wannabe comedy pros if you go to comedy.co.uk slash pro that is the website of the british comedy guide it's the most visited website in uk comedy go to comedy.co.uk slash pro and you can use the code comcom all one word to get five pound off access to their new project basically you can get pro membership of that website and it rolls together so many things which are useful to a new and to a working functioning comedian so you can curate your own cv in a in a place which has very very high web traffic indeed um and you can let me see oh i've lost my notes let me see what i could do with this from memory it's basically they've got loads of resources there's uh, an opportunities hub where people post work opportunities um and so it's sort of it's almost like the kind of um they're going for the, the jobs page of the stage, Spotlight magazine, a bit of equity, 
and uh, a bit of a sort of comedy CV hub all in one go. It basically, I've had a noodle around it, and it's fantastic. It's incredibly well geared towards uh, professional comics, and it's the sort of thing I wish had existed when I started. So if you're someone who's serious about your comedy and serious about... Uh, taking it to another level, I suppose, um, then there's just a ton of resources on there. It's absolutely worth signing up for just to check out the sorts of things they've got there. There's stuff aimed at people who are producing, writing, performing comedy, just all sorts. Absolutely worth uh, whatever it costs to learn. I've no idea <laughs> I've no idea whatever it costs to join, but I know that if you enter the code COMCOM, you can get a fiver off. So that's all of that. Let's get back to this chat with Chris Addison, and then, as I said, at the end, we will talk a little bit more about Incognito uh, and the wonderful legacy that he leaves behind. Now, it's back to Chris. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you, are you naturally the sort of person who, when faced with a challenge like day one of the movie, kind of goes, right, this is a big challenge, I'm going to dive in? Or are, you, are there bits of your nerves or anxiety that you're concealing? I was... I, I live about an hour and a half from where we filmed most of uh, the film. So I, would be take, I was taken in a, in a van... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm characterising it as a van for the sake of the story. It was actually a very nice um, people carry. But uh, I was ta- I was picked up very very early in the morning and taken, and I I, I to to set. And in the hour and a half that I was in the car with uh, my lovely driver Adam, he was uh, he. he he would sort of try and he knew he would try and kind of calm me down a bit, he'd chat about other stuff. But I was desperately staring at the at the the script for that day, the pages that we were going to shoot, and trying to think, right, how are we going to do this? What are my shots going to be? Um, all of that, all of the stuff, and none of it was going in. You know, I was I think I I was in danger of sort of cracking the glass on the iPad. I was holding it so hard, and it, <laughs> none of it was going in. That just panic, 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 panic. And uh, I, we we rounded the corner into as you get you'll you'll notice actually you may well notice occasionally uh, day glow usually pink sometimes orange signs on traffic lights oh and yeah lampposts. yeah 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 little secret code yes yeah. yeah. that say lock lock 
uh, and so on, meaning location and so on. And they usually they they'll usually have a little kind of BLL lock or something, and that BLL will be the name of uh, the name of the uh, of the show or the secret name of the show, whatever. Those are unit signs which are designed to to, to direct cast and crew uh, to where they're going to be shooting that day. And uh, I could, uh, they started to come up, and I started to feel the sort of the panic rising. And then we uh, turned the corner into the parking area, and there was the unit. There was the filming unit. So there was the catering van, and there were all the trailers, and there was the makeup bit and the production trailer, and there was wardrobes, lorry, and lighting trucks, and what have you. And I suddenly, I just, I just went, oh, I know this. It felt kind of homely to me, and I felt. Oh no! Oh no! I'm excited now. So the the I I definitely felt all of those things. I felt that horrible pressure. I felt the terrible. I, there's no way I can do this. I'm going to get found out. Same as everybody always feels. I'm I, I'm going to get I'm going to get found out. And then I just sort of thought, oh, I no, I really like this. I like this world and this job. Um, as I came around the corner, and so things got slightly better. I always think about when I first did when I directed the first time I directed anything, which was an episode of The Thick of It, and I. I, there was, I knew so little about what I was doing at that point. I can remember actually being um, being on a location uh, recce. So that's uh, when you go around... We were on a tech recce. A tech recce is um, when you go around with your entire crew and you go to the location that you're going to film in. And what your job is as a director at that point is to go, right, so this is the house. Um, I want to. Sh- we're going to start with a shot from the landing. I'm going to have a come down and then we're going to pick her up at the door. Um, it'll be really nice with blah, 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 blah. And then once you've explained all that, the departments can kind of break off and they can go and figure out what it is that they're going to do. So, okay, so the sparks need to do this. They're going to talk to cameras about it and then the... Etc. Etc. Right. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know. I'd never been. I'd been an actor. So I. So I thought I knew about film sets because I've been on films. I've been on TV sets. I know. I know acting. I know. I know what this is. I know. We all go to our trailers. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And then we wait. No. That is not what happens. And so. So I can remember. I remember walking into Nicola Murray's house on the th- on the thick of it. Um, and I, uh, the, the location manager was with me. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, I was sort of looking around at the, the hall. And then I turned around and the entire crew were standing behind me with notebooks out. And I went, what the fuck are they doing? No, 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 you tell them what you want. Oh, 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 OK. Um, right. So I, I had no, like I'd made something up. I had no idea what I was doing. Nobody, you know, nobody had ever told me what the, what the, what the procedures were. So I was scrambling my way to sort of doing anything. And the first day we were on set and I'm behind the camera, I'd set up the, the, the shots and I've done the rehearsal with the, with the characters. And so my director of photography knows exactly what he's doing. Everybody knows exactly what they're doing. The moment cannot be put off any longer. We're going to film a thing. I sit behind the monitors. There are two monitors, one for each of the cameras. Chris May, the first assistant director, starts to call. Um, quiet, ladies and gentlemen. And I thought, I thought, oh god! And I put my headphones on. I thought, what the fuck am I doing? And Armando is sitting next to me. I was thinking, Jesus fucking Christ! Like, if they couldn't, I mean, as if there isn't any more pressure. And to, to put it in context, by the way, Armando is the most supportive person, and you know, I owe him everything. But he's sitting there, my hero, next to me as I'm about to fuck up, and I'm thinking, fucking hell. And what the, the peculiar thing that happened was that Chris called action and they began to do the scene. And as they were doing it, I could feel myself thinking, no, 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 hang on, no, no, that's not what I mean. That's not right. 
And I was half out of the chair waiting for them to finish. And then I went, cut, right, hang on. So what it is is, and I went and gave a, I went and gave a note. And it's just, it turned out that, oh, right, yeah. It, it all comes down to that moment. It all just comes down to that bit where you're sitting and you're watching and you either understand or you don't what it is that needs doing to make a scene the way that you think that scene should be. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. That's so vivid. Okay. Because, because it's like comedy... We all know this. Comedy in all its forms is music and its tones and its rhythm. So uh, you, you, when you see something, if, you're, if you have that, if you have the, the sense of the tones and the rhythm, if you have the, the music about you, you know when you see it uh, what needs done, done or what could be done, you know, what the choices might be here. Uh, and, and I hadn't reckoned with that. I thought I would have to have all of the answers all up front. And you don't have to have all of the answers all up front. You actually, what, you, what you're doing is, you sort of have to trust yourself a little bit. Um, but you're, you're, you watch something and go, no, no, I know, I know what that's supposed to be and it's not that. And I think I know how we can get there. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's like, it's kind of a, an instinctive process whereby we can all we can hear oh, if the yeah. musicality of a gag doesn't work yeah or we can hear if God, obviously that's you know the, the nearest I've got to this situation is no like, but it's exactly the same comedy, thing yeah. Stuart it's exactly the same thing because you know so if you if it doesn't matter because you'll you'll know it when you see when you see it on film or on, or on TV or on stage you know it you know when you're seeing something that's not right and you've got an idea of why it's not right and you've probably got an idea of how you fix that it is interesting watching I mean, I, I definitely learned things about why some, sometimes why that doesn't work um, in a filmed comedy that's different from what I knew about rhythm and tone mm-hmm. and so on doing stand-up or, or even acting, uh, just performing comedy in general. But um, it's the same thing. It is the same thing. Something I'm something I often come back to on this show is the idea about uh, directing people. People occasionally ask me to direct their Edinburgh shows, right. and I always think the challenge with directing stand up is to help the person do what they want to yeah. do and not yeah. imprint your own. Yeah. I want to see yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Presumably, that's completely the opposite when you're directing TV or movies because actually. Mm. It, it, you've got to be the, the buck stops with you as to what you want it to be. Yeah, to to an extent, except that it's a, it, yeah, it's hard that one because again, you, you're right. So you want people to have freedom, partly because then they will be that then they'll feel that they've got creative license. They will try more things. They'll do more things, um, and also they'll probably this is and this is the key thing. They'll do something you hadn't even thought of, and you wouldn't have thought of. An actor said to me a, brilliant, a really brilliant tip. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't intended as a tip, but I thought, God, yes, of course. Which is um, always let somebody do their own version of the performance before you suggest anything about that moment or give any notes, because otherwise you'll never find out what they turned up with. Yeah. And I thought, God, I never because I'm such a control freak and I'm so worried about not getting things right that I, I would absolutely be the person with leaping going right. Here's what we're going to do um, with this one, uh, rather than actually letting people do do their do their stuff. But there are moments where you go, no, there's a very specific thing that you should do there that will help the 
that moment and it's possibly you're emphasizing the wrong word or or you know there's a rhythm thing in the in a physical action that's that's taking place or if you just stood slightly further away and lent in in a different way or whatever mm-hmm. but, but actually that last one is stuff that they don't know they can't see how you've put it put it got it on the monitor so they don't know there but but it's really they're really hard things to to approach because you're not supposed to give actors line readings, right? So you're not supposed to say hit this word. But sure. actually, in comedy, <laughs> all you need to do is say it like this, bam, and yeah. there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in, in, in comedy, that you know, the difference between a joke working and it not working can absolutely be the emphasis of a word. We know that, like we know the the the, the, the rhythm that's important, and we know really well that uh, like a joke will. Die. Even if you get the punchline perfect, if you fuck up the rhythm in the way up to that punchline, it's deed, it's done. And and there's nothing you can like you can feel it, can't you? I, I remember the times on stage where I've stumbled on the line before, or even possibly the line before the line before the punchline gone, ah Yeah, <laughs> gone, fucked it. gone, and now I have to say it badly. And it's it's so so you know that. Like I, there are times when I want to say to an actor, just, just would you just try? Th-? And it's really hard because nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be directed like that. But you're right in, in terms of stand up because stand up is so much about the stand up's a different thing. In depending on what you're doing, mostly um, most stand up is a version of the person who is uh, there there on stage. Right? So some element of it has to be sort of truthful about about them so once you start stamping on that as a director of stand-up i think that's when it that's when that becomes becomes a problem but on the other hand if you've got somebody doing purely character comedy i think you would you would be able to take a slightly less kind of um hmm, wishy-washy but uh, (laughs) you could be more prescriptive perhaps more specific okay do you know what I mean? Because yes. if they because if so, say somebody's got one one of those shows where they're going to do four characters. Okay, right. Well, you might be spotting. Uh, th- there's a funnier way of saying that line where you're being the person who you know who owns a, a, a candy floss stall, uh, and over here where you're being a deep sea diver, you're sort of doing the same thing. But it would be better if you differentiate. Yes. You know, yeah, the, okay. little technical things like that. Do you feel that you have a directing persona? a way in which you talk to actors? Have you got kind of tools for articulating yourself? In a, like, I, I imagine part of the job is to convince people of your point, convince them that their instincts yeah. are right. You know, there's that kind of sergeant major kind of, we're all going to get through this quality. Do you find that you've developed a sort of, like finding your voice in stand-up, yeah. finding your kind of leadership Voice. I don't know. That's a good question. I think um, what I do know is that it occurred to me not that recently, not that, not that recently, yes, quite recently, it occurred to me quite recently that, oh, it's a performance. Ah, ah, right. It is all the performance because your job is to. It's why it's so tiring. Is you? Is your job to turn up and hey, everything's everything's great? Or, but but also the way that I. I realise about myself on set is that I do sort of, I do adopt a, a kind of, I, I do funny stuff and I do the, I do all that sort of trying to keep things light and and being win the confidence of the room, confidence of the yeah, room. yeah. But comparing, I find that I'm comparing <laughs> the, the film. 
and, what uh, image? <laughs> well, you know, in a weird, in a weird way, and this is go, how okay, it's going to work. Thing, yeah, this yeah. Is work. Okay, trust me, we're going to have fun this evening. All of that stuff. Um, but uh, you, you know. I, I definitely, I try and um, make everyone feel like they're part of the same gang and I try and make it feel like this is a project that we're all doing together. Because actually, it, it doesn't always feel like that on, on, a, on a film or a TV set because a lot of those, the, the actors and the, and the director and uh, a couple of the other heads of department, maybe they're on the thing permanently and it's a long project for them of a few months or maybe even a couple of years. But a lot of the people on the floor, they turn up to work and what are we working on today? Yeah, of course. And because yeah. and, this is what, and, and I think making everybody feel like you are invested in this project, you are part of, 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 of we're all, or not even you're invested in this project because that sounds so corporate and nonsensical. What I actually mean is we're all a gang. We're all, we are all the same gang. Um, I think that's that's the thing that I tend to try and do. Just recognising that that's a thing you have to do, I think, is some pretty elite <laughs> knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Just guessing that's the thing. I've been on kind of TV show sets where, as an outsider, as a performer yeah. or a warm-up, yeah. you go in and yeah. you uh, yeah. you, oh. you think, oh God, this is this is this fine, this is this clockwork machine that yeah. I'm the outsider. And actually yeah. you realise, oh no, almost everyone, like the, the lighting guys haven't yeah. necessarily worked with these particular no. sound people before. Absolutely, yeah, all of that. And and, I mean, and there is an extent to which that's true. I, I, that, that you come in, I, I, I know exactly what you mean, you come in and you think, oh God, everybody knows everybody, They're all, they've all been part of the same thing, they've all got the, the in-jokes and the nicknames and the shorthand and, and here I am. Uh, I always felt like I was kind of imposing when I came and did warm up and all those sorts of things. Oh, oh, oh. But um, it's one of the things that people don't really ever think of in terms of in terms of the filming world, the TV and, and, and film. Like the vast majority of people doing those jobs or the, the, the jobs on the sort of on the set on the floor, those are really solidly working class jobs, right? The grips and the sparks and people like people like that. They work every day. They work really hard it's a really hard job to do fucking exhausting they work hard every day building and and creating stuff for for these environments but they're you know they're, they're technicians working in those environments rather than the people who are, you know floaty people coming in thinking about the vision and, and all of that stuff you sort of whenever you see on the end of a film which they do quite often nowadays say things like this th- this film supported fifteen thousand jobs yeah. Uh, you know, they, and they're talking about people at lumber yards and people at scaffolding places and lighting uh, uh, companies and so on. There's a huge. It's like, it's like theatre. It's the same as theatre and circus and all of those things. It's a proper um, the, the the actual foundations of it, not the sort of frilly on the top stuff that we all look at or or understand by film. The, the, the solid basis of it is, is people who just go to work and graft every, every day and lift yeah. stuff and plug stuff in. And, and uh, you can either make them feel like, uh, you know, like that they are, they're just sort of, they're just tradesmen who've come to do, to do a job. You can be high-handed about it. And I think that probably happens a lot of the time. Or you can just be reasonable about it and go, well, thank, thank fuck you're here because none of this would work. If you weren't, and so you know, we are. The, this is the same. This is the same gang, as far as as far as I'm concerned. I don't think it's it's not a huge revelation. That it's just it's just it, yeah, it's just under, It's just not being a dick. 
Do you, or have you, on, for example, on The Hustle, did you come across moments where you had to solve a problem as the oh, director yeah. and you, presumably there were lots of moments where you were like, I, you know, you have that experience of going, I see what's wrong here, yeah. I can smell, I can sense what's wrong. Yeah. Are there other things where you, moments where you go, something's wrong here? Yeah, but I don't and know. And I don't know what it is. Yeah, they happened a couple of times. Um, I won't specifically tell you where they are because they've, they're both in the film. I mean, they sort of, we solved them, but, um, uh, but there were definitely, there were, I can think of specifically three occasions on set where it just wasn't quite working and we had to kind of go, okay, let's just think about this for a moment. And that's a really panicky... Let's think about this while the numbers tick over and the money we're all spending. Absolutely. You know, broadly speaking, it's obscene when you think of it, but it's 150,000 a day to shoot a film. So, so... (laughs) That feels cheap, doesn't it? I mean, I was just thinking in terms of the amount of wages being paid and the rent of the space and everything. It it adds. Yeah, right, okay. (laughs) <laughs> it makes me think, so when, you know, when yeah, you're I, not, don't, I don't know what's in my head, like a million pounds a day. Yeah, yeah, maybe well, that reflects a, yeah, well, that know, reflects yeah, my very, yeah, I mean, there's, but there, I mean, there are all sorts of other, there are all sorts of other uh, costs, you know, uh, um, associated with, with the film, but that specific, uh, that's sort of the figure that I, uh, that I had in my head, so whenever okay. you stop, whenever yeah. you stop, and you have to solve something. I think of that scene in again in Black Books where um, where Bill and Dylan are, are drinking the wine, uh, and there's a, a the really expensive bottle of wine, and there's a counter on the TV. There's a counter in the corner of the screen of uh, how much money they're drinking <laughs> as, they're, as they're going. And, I, and yeah, there were a couple of occasions where just that entrance isn't working, that line isn't working as she comes in. There's a thing that we're not getting right there. What are we going to do? That's why I sort of in, I insisted. It wasn't. It isn't a very film world thing to do. But I insisted on having the writer. I, I made them fly the writer over and put her and her family up, and so I could have her on set every day. Um, because that's the, that's the background that I'm from. Is that's what our, that's what Armando would do fundamentally. You know, if you're making Veep or Thick of It or or Copperfield, which will, or Death of Stalin or anything, Avenue Five, in fact, which is the next thing. The, there's always writers there, always, always, always. Because why wouldn't you have that that resource? Um, it was. Why would you ever look at a script going? What did they mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, but look, you've got a brilliant brain. You've got a brilliant brain on the team. Why on earth would you take that thing and go? Thank you very much. No more from you. You know, get your get get all the good people. Um, so so Jack was was there, and so we would sort of we'd go into a huddle in the corner, going, "Where are we going to go?" Uh, and and figure it out from and, and figure it out from there. Um, sometimes with other people involved, and sometimes not. But but yeah, it it definitely it definitely happened, and you can feel. And there was one thing where I just sort of had to stop and say, "Could everybody have a cup of tea for ten minutes? I just need to figure this this thing out." And you can feel people people will go, "Yeah, sure." Mm-hmm. Yep. No. No. No problem. Whatever you say, Gov. But yeah. um, but they're definitely thinking. You've, come on, thinking. Yeah. Come on. So there is Im- immense pressure in that in, in that environment. But you know, it, it it is what it is because it's such a, it's so the whole thing is really kind of antithetical to what you and I would do, like how we understand creativity and how you go about creating something a show, right? So when we're writing a stand-up show what we do is we go okay well I think these jokes are good 
So I'm going to stand up in front of a room of strangers and I'm going to say the jokes and some of them are not going to be good at le- and I'm going to humiliate myself and that's part of the process and the process is endless testing, endless, 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 endless testing and then finally you've got your hour or whatever it is. That, oh, that's it, I've, I've got it in place and that is the, that's the product of rewriting and rewriting and retesting and rewriting and that's... A cheap way of making something, <laughs> but a, but but with a film, you don't get another go. So you don't know until you, like you can you. There's no there's no uh, facility for getting something on its feet and understanding that that's not quite working. I mean, you can have some rehearsals, but you don't have you can't rehearse everything. And in this weird multi-million dollar environment, isn't it insane? It's insane that the cheapest possible form of <laughs> art. We we just relentlessly it's fine we 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 keep testing until we until we've got it right but something where they are betting thirty million dollars yeah they do it once that's incredible to look at it like that and think is there is there a means of making a film where you release the film and then a year later you delete it and remake it <laughs> wow that's a great idea. well what I so here's my pitch to the film industry right so because you can so you I'm, I'm slightly I'm slightly exaggerating because what of course you do do is you you've got an edit. And an sure. edit is a massively powerful part of the of, of the process. It's really important. The edit hugely undersung, um, and the and the people who can edit and can edit comedy well are worth their weight in gold. They're phenomenal. Um, so what you can do is you you know you edit and then you show it to an audience and you find out what they think and then maybe they don't like it so you show it so you take it and you rethink it in, on, off the back of what they've told you recut it. Do it again. So that's your. That's the version of that process. It's an expensive process because mm-hmm. you know it costs thousands every time you every time you test it. But you are able to test it. You only have those resources though that you shot, right? Yeah. So unless you reshoot, you only have everything that you got that you've got in the can. That's that's your entire <laughs> uh, sort of range of paints with which you can uh, play. So, so what I think they should do. And it'll never happen for all sorts of logistical reasons. But if you were going to make a $30 million movie, why not do it like this? Make a $20 million movie, cut your above-the-line costs, which, is, which means to say above-the-line costs are things like stars, right? So to do, do deals in a different way with stars. So instead of paying them big fees, you say, we're going to do this on a percentage. So hopefully you, like Sandra Bullock did with Gravity, will make a gazillion dollars because we're going to do this really, really well. Once we've finished this process, you make your you make your twenty million version, and you keep your ten million back, and you know that you've got a month over there for for reshoots, or possibly you know two weeks there and then two mm. weeks further down the line, so that you have the chance to test your original cut, and then okay, well maybe we need another scene, maybe we should change that out, and you know more like we would do. Yeah, standards right. That routine isn't working. It doesn't matter where I put it in the set; it's just not working. Gone, yeah. dead. Kill, yeah. kill the kitten. Right, need a new kitten. <laughs> so <laughs> go and buy a kitten. And yeah. so I think they should, they should have... That, that would be the ideal way of doing it. It will never happen for all sorts of commercial and logistical reasons. But, but it seems like, um, you know, it seems mad to me that you would spend 30 million and not give yourself the best possible. That's so funny. That's like the thing in stand-up where you do your Edinburgh show and then in October, you do it in August, and then in October you're doing some bits of your Edinburgh show on stage yeah. in a club and you in- immediately instinctively solve all the problems. Yes. Like, oh, I've seen that routine. <laughs> I did a thing. A few, so I've only ever done one live DVD and it's, oh, it drives me nuts. So 
I did it 2010, I think, and I, I had a tour, right? I had a, I, I had a tour in the spring, and then I had a second leg of it in the autumn. I was going to do two weeks in Edinburgh, and uh, before I went to Edinburgh, I was going to shoot, I was going to uh, record the, the the stand-up, the DVD. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I've got, I've really got this down pat now because I've done, you know, however many gigs, loads of for fifty gigs or whatever in the in the spring. This is. This is solid now. I know exactly what this show is. Can do it backwards. Great. Let's sh- let's shoot the DVD. Then I went to Edinburgh, and what I had to do is take my two forty-five minutes and crunch them down to an hour. And suddenly, now that's a show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. God damn it! Why didn't yeah. I? So, and just, like literally after I'd done the DVD, I knew what I should have been taking out and losing and all of those things. So when I took it back on the road in the autumn, I just did that show as the as that hour as the second half, and then like forty-five minutes of of sort of topical, political, kind of mock the week, off-cut type thing. It was, oh, it was so galling. <laughs> but that's the nature of it. It's exactly what you're saying, yeah. How do you find the confidence to direct the most brilliantly talented, <laughs> famous actors, you know, comic actors, people whose instincts... Did you ever... Is there ever a moment where you said to Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I think you're doing that wrong? It's really hard. So, well, when I met Julia, the, the first time I met her, um, my brain was kind of going insane because she's such a hero and had been uh, a hero, you know, from Seinfeld for me. And uh, it was... And by that time, by the time I joined Veep, it was the second season, so I'd seen Selena and her performance is so great. Um and I did think, what the fuck? Who the fuck am I? And it's worth remembering. Now, I don't think they knew this, but I had, re- I had directed one h- half hour of TV at that point. So I had... Like, and that was the thick of it. That was the thick of it. And that was because Armando had... I mean, had, he, had you asked him or had Armando no, what, said, what, I reckon you'd be good at this? What happened, yeah, what happened there was that V1, the last series of the thick of it, and V2 happened all within a year. I mean, it's... Looking back on it, it's madness. So they, they, they did, they did, they shot Veep, and they must have shot Veep in the autumn, and then we did thick of it in the spring. And they, and then I don't know how they're still alive, those boys. Um, it's thick of it in the spring, and then the following autumn it was uh, Veep, Veep two. So there was an awful lot to take on, really. Um, it's an insane amount. There were were there seven episodes of that thick of it, so it's fifteen episodes of stuff of two different shows in a year and then back round again and what you, also what you have to understand about say a, a show like Veep is it doesn't have a year's production time it has 14 months so you're you're opening your writer's room at the same time that you're finishing off the previous season so it, it, those things take a long time and so factor in in the middle of that you've also got the, the final series of The Thick of It up to that point Arm had, had directed all of uh, all of them all episodes um uh, and the film, of course, and the specials and what have you. And he realised that, but I can't do all of it. I can't, because I can't be in the edit for all of it. I can't, I've, I've got to sort of farm this out a little bit. <clears throat> so he did some of the episodes. And then he took, because, as we were discussing earlier, it's shot in such a specific way. <clears throat> and there are aspects of the sort of performance that were done in a very specific way as well. Aspects of the, sort of the relationship of script to performance and how the thing is written and so on. There were very much... A, a unique, um, uh, bespoke kind of process. He wanted people from within the family to uh, 
to direct. So he got me and Billy Snedden, who's the brilliant editor, one of the brilliant editors uh, of Thick of It, um, and so many other astonishing things. Um, and Natalie Bailey, who had been Arms' assistant and has gone on to a fabulous directing career, um, and Tony Roach, the fabulous writer, um, one of the original writers as well of, of Thick of It and Veep. And, and so, the, uh, and, and I, so we did some of the, the, the episodes for him. Um, and he knew that I'd always wanted to be, like, I'd started out wanting to be a theatre director before I went into stand up. That was what I wanted to do. So he went, and this is also one of a great testament to him and one of his strengths is that he finds people and he goes, you'd be interesting doing this thing. Come in and have a go at this, which is how I started acting in the first place. I acted before uh, the thick of it. And uh, so that's how I ended up <laughs> doing that, that one episode. And we, we used to shoot thick of it episodes in four days, um, which is really fast, really fast for a, for a show, especially when you consider that we would generate an hour's worth of material. So we, the first cut of any episode of The Thick of It is like a, a half an hour longer than the half hour it needs to be. Okay, okay. Which is where you learn about... Edit, why editing is so important to that, that process is because the, the story emerges as much as anywhere else. The story emerges in the edit for Thick of It and in The Loop and so on. Less so with Veep, because there's a little bit... I mean, Veep tended to be about 45 minutes for a half hour, but anyway, which is still long. Um, so, and on the final day, on the fourth day, I was eating my uh, breakfast, and um, I had to be in it as well, because... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good job all the actors look tired throughout. Oh, <laughs> it was insane, really. I, uh, I shan't bore you with the details, but I was supposed to do one of the opposition-only episodes, which was um, uh, which didn't have me in. Uh, but for, there was a timing clash with another thing I was doing, so I ended up having to be in the episode that I directed, which was madness. For and the first thing you've ever directed was, as well. It's it incredible. It was lunacy. <laughs> lunacy. Yes. I don't really remember a lot of it because I don't think my brain will remember will allow me to remember a lot of it. Anyway, uh, I on the on the on the last day, um, Amanda went sick uh, and wasn't there. He was normally by me at the at the, at the monitors, which made me feel you know very classic mental ploy. Yeah, 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 um, and I, yeah, the, the script advice came up to me and went, "Yes, um, I won't be in today." Pardon? What? Uh, so I sort of had to do it my had to do it myself. Luckily, Peter Capaldi was there, who has always been like he's he's been so good to me over the years. He he was he properly took me under his wing. So it was so I sort of had him there, uh, which was great. And um, and then the next day, Armando, I was just back to being Ollie, and Arm um, um, came in and said, "I knew it'd be all right. Do you want to do some Veep?" Um, and so, yeah, sure. Yes, that, thank you. Thank you, please. Um, so I'd just done that one thing before I went, up, before I went off and, and did Veep. So when I met Julia, I was going insane in my head because I was thinking, it's Julia Lewis, do this. And, uh, but I was also thinking, calm the fuck down. And also, don't give yourself away. Just don't give yourself away because they're expecting a professional to come in. Yeah. So you, you sort of... So after about 30 seconds, I went, shut up. You're like, all of that, all of that stuff has to go over there in a box. Feel that later. Yeah. Shake yeah. in the cab later on. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> it's that yoga thing, acknowledge acknowledge the thought and send it on its way, right? So, yeah, I know, I, I believe that, I believe in all of that, but we have to deal with that later because I have to, we, there's a job to do here. And I think it's it's that. The other thing is, how do you, the, 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 uh, a better answer though, uh, is both, because Julia is, 
astonishing in so many ways. She's a brilliant number one on the call sheet because she sets a phenomenal uh, tone, right? So, so the, the, the tone of, um, of a set generally comes down to uh, the director and number one on the call sheet, the star. And uh, if, they, if they are fuckers... It gives license to anybody else who fancies being a fucker or becomes a fucker because they're tired yeah. to be a fucker. Uh, and she's not. She's, she's a fabulous person and she's also so committed and such a brilliant comedy technician and so excited by the idea of how we're going to make this and what we're going to do and how that moment will work and so on that actually to direct Julia is really just to be in a conversation where you're both going, ooh, how do we make this really yeah, good? Yeah, OK. And so you're not saying... I don't think so. You're sure. saying, what, what, what about, what about, what about this? Uh, and that's the thing that you, that, that, it's not a ploy, it's just that you're, you're you know, you're, everybody's enthusiastic in, in, in that environment. That's really how Veep always was. I mean, it was, cat, it was, it was crazy and, and, uh, and often very disorganised and it, we shot immensely long hours and it went insanely late and scripts were very late and all of these kinds of things. But it all worked and there was always a sense on, on, on set of, oh, yeah, 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 we can do that. And what about this? There are sort of moments where I, I just think, oh, I'd, like, I'd just like to go and do a bit of stand-up now. But it's, you know, it, it, it's all my stuff's very old. I feel like I would, I would have to sit and, for my own sake, I'd have to sit and write a thing now and then. That's a whole process, isn't it? Getting, But also, you, all, you, you know as a stand-up that seven days off and you feel rusty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, three, four years, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of brown water to run out of the tap before, you, before, <laughs> before getting back. But, um, but I love it. I, I, I love, love, love it. And it's where I'm from and still sort of identify myself as being. But I, I, I had... I, yeah, recently I thought, I, I think I might have been doing that wrong. I think I might have approached it in, in the wrong way. There were lots of lessons I sort of refused to learn as I was. Oh, come on. Off. What lessons did you refuse to well, learn? Well, so I, I think one of them is that uh, the idea itself isn't funny. Right, so if you think of a funny idea, this is really basic, and this is stand-up 101, and you should, people should know this. And people who've done nine shows should fucking know this. And I did know it, but um, often if I would find an idea hilarious and I would present it to the audience, they'd go, and, and there would be not the reaction that I wanted. And I really, what, what it was was a, was a failure always to follow it up, to, ex, to expand the idea. Yes. You know what I mean? So, yes. So it's sort of like... It's a bit like um, when you're doing a, a, like an essay at school for GCSE, and you make a point, but you don't do your, you don't back it up. You've got to you've got to back up your point. Haven't you? You've got to give the evidence, like in, in a history. Yes, essay. because otherwise you're making the connection yeah. that's funny, yeah, and they're not making it yet. No, absolutely. So you lose the mark in the essay, and you don't get the laugh in the in in the room. And I I definitely did that wrong. I think that my um, I, I I feel I wonder if it's I think that I was doing it wrong because I have a different sort of outlook on life now than I did when I was last doing stand-up. I wonder if, because, you know, because I'm older now, I'm sort of, I, then I could pretend that I wasn't quite middle-aged. I'm definitely middle-aged uh, now, and I wonder how, how far that's changed it. And I had a moment of extraordinary revelation doing 8 out of 10, I, 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 Cast's Countdown, mm, about two years ago. And I fell for that thing that they always say, because I'm an idiot, 
I felt what they always say, those people, is, oh, you come and do this. It's great. It's so much fun. There's no prep. You don't need to do any prep. <laughs> you, you need to join in the lie that you didn't do any prep with all the other people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I oh, haven't done any revision. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, what God, am I yeah. going to do? So no prep. And then, and, then, uh, and then I turn up and lovely Joe Wilkinson, who's one of my favourite uh, comedians and is a it's genuinely superb, superb human. Joe, Joe had this fucking hilarious... Um, uh, he had a... Uh, you have to bring your mascot. And he had this sex doll mascot... Which, you've got to be very skilled to make this funny, but God damn it, he made it funny. He was so good, and it went on and on and on. I was thinking, but the prep that has gone into that is huge. Like, you know, the, the, the team have found him the sex doll, and they've dressed it up in a particular way, and they've gone out and shot some things. <laughs> what do you mean there's no prep? Right? But, all, but in the middle of it, I, I was on, uh, and it, the brilliant people, some of my favourite people were, were, were on. John was on, and Joe was on. Kath Ryan was on, who's Fantastic and uh, lovely. David Doherty was doing Dictionary Corner. Couldn't be, couldn't be happier. And in the middle of it, I suddenly thought, "Oh, I don't have a shtick." That's why these things have always been so hard for me, and I've always found them so difficult. And I, I don't have a thing that you can identify that is the touchstone for everything that I do that the audience can instantly identify with that's why this doesn't work for me it was I was there it was in the middle of the studio whilst the thing was happening I suddenly got it and you know years and years and years of doing doing something like mock the week is slightly different because because you can it's about jokes really that show it's great when it's about there's an element in which it's about persona but mostly it's about jokes uh, and uh, so, but, but, I mean, I suppose in, in Mock the Week, people are expecting Milton to be Milton. They were expecting Frankie to be Frankie and, and Dara to an extent to be Dara. But broadly speaking, if you've got the funny line, it's going to be fine. And that's how that show is cut. That's how it's edited. That's what uh, the producers want the show to, and the audience want the show to be. Cats does Countdown is a mess about and you have to, they have to know who you are and they have to get it straight away, what your, what your thing is. I don't have a thing. And I, it was really, yeah, it was really interesting. And it made me think about, about stand-up and what that meant about the, the stuff that I had done in, in the past. I've always, with stand-up, I've always uh, kind of avoided being personal. So my shows have tended to, tended to take me into um, smart-ass whimsy. Science, history, yeah, yeah, this is a that. thing in the Bible, this is a thing yeah. about atoms or but, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But actually what you could do is you could bring your smart-ass whimsy and be Dara about it, where you don't, you don't wear your heart on your sleeve. Dara is the, one of the smartest comics. I fucking love him. I think he is a marvel. I just love watching him. It's a treat just to listen to that level of invention and intelligence and cleverness that is worn so lightly. Yes. So, yes. so lightly. And I did the very opposite of that. Yes. And, 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 I, I, and it worked really well for me for all sorts of reasons because um, when I started doing the sort of themed shows, 
It was a response to a stand-up show that had gone very badly. That in in '99, I did a show called Gentleman Scholar Acrobat in, in Edinburgh. It's a funny title. I only saw that in the thing earlier on today. <laughs> well, <laughs> I like that title. That appeals to me. Do you know what it's a, a reference to? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay, you no, might, I, mean, I, I mean, suspect no, you're slightly too young. So, so it, it, it's a reference to uh, the uh, the Pink Panther cartoon okay. that was in, on in the sort of early '80s, late '70s on Saturday Tea Time. Uh, the Pink Panther theme tune when he's a gentleman a scholar he's an acrobat okay. and uh, so gentleman scholar acrobat is what I put on the thing which was fine in 1999 because uh, people were still alive who understood and uh, except I say that but there was one Spanish family who turned up to the show and <laughs> I didn't speak a word of English expecting some acrobatics however uh, it was a bad show badly made lazily made like I didn't do the work for it and then I turned up at Edinburgh and I, and I did this show and it was, I, it was pulling teeth every night. I just didn't do the work. Um, and I sort of, I, I had a slight kind of crisis of confidence. After that. And I also did, I did a, a terrible show on Channel 4 in 2000 called Dot Comedy, um, which, uh, it, which is a whole story in, in of itself. <laughs> but what was a very promising idea with a very good team turned through, you know, lots of the usual networky things into something just grim. And it ended up with me and my, my, me and my friend Jeff, we would, on a Tuesday night, we would record on a Wednesday. On a Tuesday night, he and I would go to the pub and try and write some improv lines for me that wouldn't appear in the script. Okay. Just to try and, you know, get something worthwhile in there. It was ridiculous. And it felt... And it properly took the wind out of my sails. Because up until that point, I'd only been going, you know, sort of two or three years, well, three, three or four years probably. And things had been going quite well and people were going, oh, he's an exciting new guy. And and then that, that just felt like, oh, I've blown it. I, I, I blew it. What am I, so what am I going to do? And I, and I went back and thought through, okay, how am I going to... How am I going to do Edinburgh in a way that sort of distances me from that? And it's just not just another corn-fed white kid uh, boy specifically you know chatting whimsy about the world that he doesn't fully understand because he's not old enough yet so um, it's a genre it's a, it's a genre it's a sort of it's a just totally a saturated phase. genre is, yeah, yeah yeah if you can make it a phase that's fine if you if you if you're in it too long it becomes a genre and then you're in trouble I think and but but I so uh, so I did a show then called Cakes and Ale, which was again the title is a giveaway for what fucking Ponce I am because that's a Shakespeare reference, baby. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, it was about Britishness and what it's like to be British. So I it was it was a structured show and it was a it was a sort of it was not quite a lecture at that point, but it was that kind of thing. It was themed at a time where people just weren't doing themed stuff. So when I when I mean that's what everybody does now, obviously in, in Edinburgh these days uh, and for for the last I guess 15, 10, 15 years, that's what you do. Your show is about a thing. Although quite often they're not about the thing. Um, and that's a problem, I think. I'm just trying to think of to who in 2004 was... I suppose Dave Gorman was doing... So 90... Did he do themed stuff? So well, yeah, so in 2000... So Dave, actually, to be fair, yes, Dave had done... So 97, Dave did Reasons to be Chiff. I think that 2000, he, he might have been doing... 2000 might have been Are You Dave Gorman, actually. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so Dave was def- definitely doing that. Um, most people, 2000, that was Dan, Dan Kitson, wasn't that Love, Innocence and the Word Cock? I 2001, think. Dan, maybe. Was that 2001? Anyway, it, was, it wasn't, like, 
it, it wasn't so much a thing as it as it has sure. sort of as it has become, um, and the ones that and, and then that it developed from there into something that, this sort of spoof lecture format that I did for another. Let me count it: one, two. Wait, hang on. Oh yeah, four four times I think, um, and that 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 sort of worked for me partly because it was a re- it's a really good way of putting a stand up show together of putting a structure together. It's a really helpful way yeah. of creating a show if you can do it properly. If you can be sort of honest, like, about it. like assembling an essay, but but if you can do it properly, it doesn't feel dry like an essay. But you go, I'm going to talk about this. You talk about it, then you say you talked about it, and it's marketable. And yeah. it's all of those positive things. In fact, I used to construct them specifically like an essay, right? So when I was, when I was, the best thing I got out of university, apart from my fabulous friends, is um, one of my tutors, an excellent man called Tom Davis, told said to us, right? Here's here's how you here's how you put an essay together. This is in the days before you, every everybody's writing stuff on laptops. This is because I'm quite ancient, so this is all paper. Uh, and he said, get a little spiral notepad, a little sort of hand-sized spiral notepad, right? Go to the library and, um, and research your essay, right? Every time you read a thing in a book, a point that you want to make, okay, write it down on that piece of paper and then write your, your, you know, your reference underneath it right? and then move on to the next one. One note, one idea, one piece of paper. At the end of all of that, when you've done all your research and you're ready to write the essay, here's what you do. You take the spiral out of the pad and then you spread it all out on the floor. Spread it all out on the floor, and you look at it, and you go right. What goes with what? And then you then you identify the put those things in piles, and then you say right. What is the order of those piles? What's the actual? How, what's the story that I'm telling in this? I say okay. Then you put the piles in that order, and then you order what's within the piles themselves, and then you put the spiral back in, and you've got yourself an essay plan in notebook form. That is genius it's a really 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 clever thing what, what he's doing is really explaining what 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 writers know which is put it all up on put it all up on the wall that's yeah. how you that's how you deal with structure and it's how you can write a, a stand-up show so when i used to do shows like um the first one i did properly did like that was civilization which was about no 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 it wasn't it was the ape that got lucky which was about evolution in 2002 and uh, i did all the research me and my uh, me and my friend carl cooper who's now a brilliant uh, bbc producer did all the research um wrote loads and loads of jokes uh even that the starting point of we did the research yeah like that's a thing that's not a blank piece of paper is it when you're coming no. to write a show yeah i've got to do some research i've got to do some research right i've got to, i've got to actually figure out what I'm, what it is that i'm talking about but so we would and what, what we would do is we would do the research and then we would write jokes to the research and anything that was a funny joke would make it in right so no fact ever got in that wasn't supported by a joke so, so it had to be it, the the jokes were the first, so what we basically ended up with was a bunch of here are a bunch of jokes about topics and subtopics of of evolution right put them all what goes with what and we ordered them exactly the way that that um, that Tom had taught me to to order an essay, to order an essay uh, but you know any any fact however interesting that didn't have a good joke gone. Right? So, so, which makes it slightly harder to write the essay. But that was the last thing that I used to do. Once I got the show, I would take all the jokes off it and write a 1,500-word through-line essay okay. on what, what the argument of the show is. Wow! To prove to myself that it makes sense 
And it's not just a lot of, here's a keyword and here's a, 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 a routine I happen to have about that or something adjacent to that topic. Sure. So that it all actually made sense. You'd actually write a real essay. I would write a real, real essay and then put the, put the uh, jokes back on it just to know that I had the show, that I had the, I had, I had the order of it. Um, because even if you don't... Like you're not expl- you're not going to say or read out the essay or show people. It's just part. It was just a part of the process to make it make absolutely certain that what I was saying wasn't just bollocks. It was it had some foundation because on some level people know, like they can tell when you're wandering off, or or they can tell if you're sticking to the thing that you said. So tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them you told them is a, is a good maxim. But the middle bit is where people go wrong. Sure. So people often stand up, often come on stage and go, "I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do, a, we're going to do a show about drains," uh, and then they actually talk about uh, drain pipe trousers uh, yeah, or something. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, then, and that was my show about drains. Yeah. And, and at the end, when you tell them that you told them, they will go, "Did you? Did, did you tell me that?" Mm-hmm. Even if they don't consciously do that, something is making people go, oh, "I'm not sure that was what I was sold." If I'm truthful so you have to make sure that you're, you're, you're doing that anyway i got so caught up in all of all of that that i sort of forgot to give what i was doing i don't know i, I think i went away from something else something that i would be more interested yeah in i was gonna say it's, it's, exactly is is what you've described I and mean, what you've described is a way to make a stand-up show be like an essay <laughs> yeah <laughs> that you haven't described a way to Honestly, open yourself and your Absolutely. heart and talk about the shit that's meaningful to you. Absolutely, that is completely correct. And I think that's one of the things that makes me go, oh, I was doing that wrong. And I, I don't think I was doing it wrong for, the, for that point in my life, probably. And also, I, like, I love all that shit. All the stuff I was talking about, and that stuff that genuinely fascinates me, um, that, that uh, sort of quasi-academic stuff always makes me laugh. One of the things that I love is being really stupid about a really big idea. You mentioned earlier on this, the, everything has to be perfect. As a director, you have to override your instinct that everything has to be perfect. Yeah. Where does that, what does that come from? What does that kind of clenched feeling come from? I think it, it's fear, though, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of... one. Well, there's, there's a, a couple of things. The clenched feeling, I think, comes from, comes from fear and the... The, the misapprehension that there is a specific answer, that there is a right answer to what this... So, so that there's a, like, there's a version of the hustle somewhere that is the perfect version. And my job is to know exactly what that is and, and, and get our film to look exactly like that thing. So that shot needs to be that. This line needs to be silly. That hat needs to be that hat or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I think we all think sometimes there's a, there's a specific version of this that I, I need to be finding my way towards and that's not true that's not how creativity actually occurs right you 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 you're going to find something in the um, in in the moment i remind myself when i'm when i'm feeling like oh god it's all got to be perfect i sort of try and remind myself of um there's a brilliant thing prince wrote in the back of a tour program from like 1992 or something he said he was, talk, he was talking about writing a song, the process of writing a song. He said, he said, so he said when you write a song, uh, it appears in your head. 
the song appears in your head and your job is to get it out through the guitar into the world. He said, but something about that process of getting it out through that instrument into the environment completely changes the song. What you heard in your head doesn't exist in the world, but a whole new song does. That's a really good... That's lovely. It's great, isn't it? And it's such a good boiling down of what the, what the um, experience of creating something actually is. Because you have, you have something in your head, sometimes it's quite vague, but you've got, it, it's a feeling, maybe even just, but by the time you get it out, oh, that's the, the, the decisions you've made and the, the, the directions it's gone in, the compromises and all those things have turned it into something else, which is perfectly valid. So maybe the thing that was in your head is a sort of, I don't know, like it's the seed, it's a fetal version of the, of the fully grown thing that, that, that comes out of you. But it, it's you know, a practical way of thinking about it is by the time you stand on set, you have a very specific vision in your head. You've been, you've been reading that script for months and months and months and months and months, you know, inside out. I could tell you the scene. If you give me the number, I can tell you the, the scene because uh, you know it so well. Um, and so so much of what's in your head is still the sort of first thoughts but when you get to set even though you've had a million conversations with different creative departments about where we're going to shoot this what it's going to look like what they're going to be wearing how we're going to point the cameras all of that stuff never looks like you imagined it was going to look like it's always something else and so even when you're even when you're there it's not the thing you were thinking of you just have to sort of let, let go of that and it's very very hard to let go of it it's, it's not a it's not a one time deal either you don't just get to let go of it once you have to repeatedly let go of it because you will always fall back to that position you know it's not like a moment of, I think when, when people talk about those religious moments of revelation this is enlightenment and like like, like enlightenment is a binary position once it's ha- or, you know, or taking the lid off the jam click the top's clicked and now you're enlightened right? <laughs> you can never not be enlightened again because the top has clicked on the jam and that's it's not that's not how things work you can you can realise oh well of course this is like not exactly as I imagined it but the next time you're going to have to tell yourself probably in the next day maybe even the next moment you're going to have to keep telling yourself that stuff and that it has to be perfect stuff is is what is the position that you fall back to before you remind yourself that is not how this works So that was Chris Addison. Thank you once again to him for coming on to the show. Thanks for Avalon for letting me record there. Thank you to the Comedy Store in London for allowing me, as I race through central London on a Monday night, to uh, hide in the bit behind the stage, which is where you can hear some humming from the... I don't know what, servers, aircon, something like that. And so thanks to the guys at the store for letting me sneak back here to record these blurbs. An apology if there is a faint hum in the background. And thanks as ever to Nathan Wood for editing and uploading the show and the extras, which you can find at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And thanks to Rob Smouten for the music and the fabulous gig that he played uh, with Hot Chip recently when me and my wife went along to see that. Thank you to Pete Domming, podcast consultant, who I know for a fact is not caught up with the most uh, recent episodes, but when you do listen to this in the future, hi, Pete, thanks. And um, and that's all of that. So I'll post Amble at you in just a second. Remember, it's comedy.co.uk slash pro and use the offer code comcom, and you can go to uh, that link in the show notes for the Women and Children First Comedy Night on the 13th of May at the Leicester Square Theatre. Lots of admin there. Let's talk about Ian Cognito uh, after this noise. <laughs> 
But for now, that concludes the podcast. So, listen, I have rarely seen, I don't think since Rick Mail's death, have I seen such a kind of outpouring of love and affection. And even, I suppose, because Cogs was more one of us, like a gigging circuit comic, and probably even more so, more than anyone uh, of late that I can remember, um, Facebook and other social media and people's phones and conversations were awash this week with just a huge amount of um, love and condolence and reminiscence, reminiscence um, at the, the sad death, the very untimely death at the age of just 60 of Ian Cognito, um, known as Cogs on the Circuit. I mean, I'm not doing an obituary here, but I just, if you don't know about him, you should try and find some stuff about him. There's, you should look something up on YouTube and try and get just a glimmer of what it must have been like to be in the room with this guy who was kind of... God, he's one of those people as a new comic. I drove him to a gig once, and he was such... He was so gentle and supportive and at the same time kind of rough and brutish and poetic and he just gave his entire life to comedy and he was never he never did TV he was 30 years he regarded himself apparently as the undecorated hero of comedy but he really inspired so many people so many stories of legendary crazy nights out people had with cogs at gigs I've got a few of my own which I might share with you another time um, and uh, and also stories about him just being, on one hand, kind of terrifying. <laughs> and, you know, certainly if you were someone that ran a gig and you didn't especially want him to bang a nail into the back wall as part of his opening gag. Um, but also, just, just to, you know, at, at the same time, this incredibly sweet and gentle and supportive and encouraging person who really loved the art of live comedy and would go to great lengths to just be excellent. I don't know what else to say. Everyone was hit really hard um, by Cogs' death and he, he did pass away on stage. It, is, it seems trite, but I can't think of another way he'd have wanted to go. Um, he was on stage at a gig in Bicester in Oxfordshire and was doing jokes about strokes and heart attacks and then sat down and apparently just died just had a heart attack on stage and there are i mean god you never want to go in any way but um it did really seemed it seemed really to suit the kind of archetypal comic force that he represented he really was like like our version of a sort of wandering troubadour and i think i get the impression that that's why he loved comedy you know that that sort of mythic court jestery sort of thing whereby someone is just unafraid to go to any lengths in pursuit of what's new, what's original, what's funny, what's daring, what's shocking. And um, he will be, as you can imagine, very, very sorely missed. Ah, oh, cheerio, Cogs. I don't know that I want to say anything else at the end of that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, there'll be plenty of people out there who gigged with him more often than I did, have crazier stories than I have, had longer car journeys than I had with him. Um, but I think the most satisfying thing... I mean, I think we all, all circuit comics on Cogs' death, we all went, oh my God, not him. How did it happen? Here's a story. We all sort of came together online to talk about him, as we will do for, for weeks and weeks to come. But we also, I think everyone must have thought, God, how am I going to go? What's it going to, what, what will be the, uh, what will be the reaction when I go? And uh, I think anyone would be very proud to have had such a, a huge 
burst of, uh, of love and joy in their honour. Onward and upward, I will speak to you next week. We have Matt Bronger, and then hopefully we've got someone, uh, someone very special and exciting. <laughs> no, no offence to Matt, who is excellent, but someone who I think, is, if you're a UK comedy fan, you'll be very uh, excited to hear coming up very soon. That's all for now. Mm-hmm.